Welcome to this podcast from Field Partner International. We are an online community and resource for Christian missionaries working across cultures. You can visit our website, fieldpartner.org, which features free video courses, blogs, podcasts, sermons, and more. Subscribe to this channel, our YouTube channel, or Facebook page to stay updated on our latest resources. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining me. This is Christine Patterson. Welcome to Field Partner. So today, I'm really pleased to be able to share another lovely story um, with Ruben Inwe, who is from Nigeria. He has been sent as a missionary from Nigeria to the UK. And um, we're really pleased to be able to hear his story. Ross and I met him last year when Ross was asked by Ruben on, um, to zoom in from Taiwan um, to share with them, with his fellowship. And uh, we heard back from Ruben some of his story too, and that's why I want to share it with you. So Ruben, thank you so much. Thank you for uh, being willing to do this with me. Thank you for having me. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Okay, so we always start these interviews with a question about origins. Where are you from originally? How did you come to faith? And where did you meet your wife? Okay. Okay, yes. I'm, uh, I'm originally from the Delta in Nigeria. Uh, uh, my state is Delta State, but I was born in Lagos um, in Nigeria. I went to primary, secondary school, university, did all my professional training in Lagos. And that was uh, almost 51 years ago. I was born 51 years ago uh, yeah. in July, this July of 51. And um, yes, I had a very lovely childhood, proper top of my parents. And uh, my parents were not regular church goers, um, but then they encouraged us to go to church every Sunday. <laughs> it's, quite a, it's quite a strange one, but they, they did. Every Sunday we have to go to church. Uh, I met um, my wife um, while at the university. I was a year ahead of her, and um, fortunately she came to study in my department. And at the time she came to study at my department, I was the uh, president of the departmental association. So we're supposed to welcome new students. And uh, she came in and I saw her filling the information form and she, 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 she stood facing the table and I was behind. And there and then I felt the spirit of God say to me, that's your wife. Wow. And I went straight to her. I tapped her on the shoulder and she looked at me and I said, hello. And she said, hello. And I said, do you know you're going to be my wife? <laughs> Ruben. Yes, yes. yes. That, that was exactly what I did. Wow. Uh, yeah. And, she and what was her response? At, she looked at me very, dis, very, very disgusted by what I said. Eyes away and walked off. <laughs> So first impression wasn't very good. Two years into our course, I was already in my final year. By, by then, they were, ourself and some of our friends will always gather around um, the lecture room to study. And uh, I used to provide extra lessons uh, for them. So she got to know me a little bit more. Um, she got to know that I was a Christian and, and all those kind of things. And uh, 
I remember one day again, I told her, I said, I said to you the first day I met you that you're going to be my wife. And uh, you were not happy about that. I'm very sorry, but then I have to say what the Lord told me, you know. And he told me there the second time that it can never happen. <laughs> it can never happen. I should just zero my mind away from that, that that will happen. And um, she's, she's not interested. I said, okay, that's fine. No problem. And I left her, but I was convinced she was going to come around. So it took another two or three, I think three years later, she said yes to me. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, the rest is history, like they say. What a lovely story. I didn't know that. And yeah. uh, so have you been married now? We've been married for 20 years um, since 2001, December. So last year was our 20th wedding anniversary. Um, uh, yeah, but we, we've known each other for uh, probably 30 years, to be honest. Wow. So did you always intend to do missionary work or were you trained for other work? No, missionary work was outside, outside. In fact, it was nothing. I didn't ever dream about missionary work. My dream was to become, um, first of all, the youngest CEO of a bank in my country. <laughs> and then second of all, the youngest president of my country. That was my dream since I was nine. Wow. Um, I almost got to the first, I've always achieved the first dream before I was called into full-time ministry. Um, so I worked in investment banking. I was trained as an accountant. Uh, mm-hmm. So I had my degrees in accountancy. I had my professional certifications in accountancy. And uh, I worked for about eight years in investment banking before wow. coming into full-time ministry. Missions wasn't part of it at all. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, God had to work on you as much as, much as your wife. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, how yeah. did that come about? Well, what happened to me was that when I became a Christian, my, 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 my experience of salvation was very dramatic. Um, I was traveling in a public um, bus in my city, and the public buses, they're very popular. You know, everything happens in the public bus. Um, people sell stuff in the public bus. You have preachers on the public bus. You know, uh, you discuss politics in the public bus. You do everything in the public bus. So if you're traveling long distances like I do um, uh, from, from where I lived to to school, um, the public bus is a very interesting uh, part of your day. So I was in this public bus once, and a boy about 12 years old stood up with a Bible in his hands and screamed on top of his voice, ah! So the minute he opened his mouth, it was obvious to everybody that this boy had speech impediment. So he couldn't, he couldn't, it was audible, but nobody could understand what he was saying. But because he had a Bible in his hands, and you can just about catch what he's trying to say that he couldn't say. So the first thing he said when he waved his Bible was, let somebody shout hallelujah. That was what he said. And from then on, he just started to mumble. Ah, ah. And somehow we all knew he was talking about Jesus. We all knew. And the 
the level of conviction of sin in the bus was palpable. Hmm. People started crying. People started sobbing profusely. People started kneeling down, you know, and confessing their sins and just praying. And this boy was still screaming and he was still preaching and he was still doing all of that. That was my first encounter with the living God. And from that day, I said to myself, if this boy, with all his disadvantages, could do what he's doing, I will do, I will do more. Mm. I said, God, if this, if you could use this boy, such a young boy with all his impediments, please use me any which way, any way you want to. Right. So that, that was how this journey started. Okay. But um, I come from a quite a large family. And uh, where I come from, when you get to a certain level in your life, you look after everybody else. Mm-hmm. If God elevates you first, you take advantage of that to look after everybody else and help them also stand on their, on their two feet. So um, for me, I was quite blessed because God uh, raised me up quickly. I got a fantastic job and um, a lot of people were looking up to me. So the idea that I was going to go into full-time ministry didn't really come at all. So one day I was in the office praying um, during my lunch break and I felt the Spirit of God say to me, it is time to leave this job. And and in that meditation, I said, so where do I go? Do you have another job for me? Because I thought when I heard that, the idea was there was something else. There was something better (laughs) somewhere in that context. And and he said, no, it's time to go and serve me full time. And don't forget, by this time, I was already leading a church, but on a part-time basis. Mm -hmm. You know, so um, I said, okay. The interesting thing was that I didn't struggle with it at all. I loved God so much mm. that I was willing to let go anything. Nothing was out of mm. bounds for me to mm. relinquish. Um, I felt it was an honor that I was asked uh, to do it. And um, so I went straight to my parents to tell them, and they were very upset. Very, very upset with me that, why, how can I do this? Um, I know my responsibility in the family. If I lose this job, who will look after the family? What will happen and all of that? I said, don't worry, God will look after us. Oh, my mom said, you're a very wicked boy. You know? <laughs> I said, don't worry, God is, in, God is in control and all of that. So, well, long story short, uh, I put in my, I handed in my, my resignation and uh, went straight to the church and offered myself a service. <laughs> yeah. So um when did when did going to Europe come into it then? Well, going to Europe came seven years after I went into full-time ministry. Okay. Now actually uh, my organization wanted to send me initially to go and oversee the church in Malaysia. Uh, church network in Malaysia because we have churches in Malaysia as well. And I was instrumental in planting the first of our churches in Malaysia. So I was in church once and some Malaysians came to join 
us that Sunday morning. And after the service, they came to see me and said to me that they needed us to come into their country to plant a church. So I said, well, your country is quite far. <laughs> and uh, it would take a lot to send somebody over there and all of that. So they said, if we can, if we can organize it and create the structure and provide the, the facilities required, that they, they can hold the fort until we find somebody. I said, okay, that's fine. So we mobilized them and we started the process. So when their brother, Brother Daniel, uh, a, a native Malay, um, uh, went over, registered the church and got a property and uh, he, he started the, the church until uh, my organization now said, okay, maybe you will go and, uh, and uh, oversee the church there. But at this time, I was very heavily involved in overseeing the youth ministry in my country for my organization. And that was quite a huge movement. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the leader of our organization said, no, he's not going, uh, send somebody else. And that was okay by me because it wasn't as if there was a conviction. I was just going to obey instructions anyway. So uh, a friend of mine, uh, in fact, I was asked to recommend somebody. <laughs> so I recommended a very dear friend of mine who was a missionary in the north of Nigeria. And it was said that he's doing pretty well now. He has planted something like 300 churches since then around Malaysia. So Amazing. a few years later, uh, my wife had a vision. And the vision was that she saw us in an open field. And I was standing on a platform preaching to people. And when she was sharing this with me, I said, yes, of course. That's what I do all the time. I stand on platforms. I said, no, 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 this is different. The reason why it's different is that the people I saw you preaching to, they were wearing long coats. And the, and the sand they were standing on was, was white. Mm. I said, what's the meaning of white sand? What's the meaning of long coats and all of that? I said, did you see their faces then? I said, no, 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 she couldn't see their faces. She just noticed that they were there wearing long coats, and they were standing on white sands. I said, okay, we'll pray some more then. So we prayed. And she went to a crusade with my mom after then. And I wasn't at that crusade. Then this guest speaker that came suddenly took one look at her and said to her, your husband is going on mission. And God asked me to tell you to let him go and support him. <laughs> I was telling my wife that and my mom was listening and uh, he also instructed my wife that when he gets home if, when he sees me she tell me that this meeting is still continuing for the next four days that I should try and see him like, as a personal message for me and I said so my wife came back home told me about it I said no chance I'm not seeing anybody no <laughs> so I didn't see him actually I didn't see him at all so um, then I was in the office one day and the Lord opened my eyes to the um, globe. You know, this globe-like map thing. Mm -hmm. And the globe was spinning right in front of me. It was spinning right in front of me. And I was saying to myself, just stop, stop, stop. And it slowly stopped. And when it stopped, I saw in the, in the, in the top of another map that was facing me, 
boldly written Y-O-R-K. And mm. I didn't know what that meant. I don't know anywhere called York except New York. You know, so, so, and immediately I saw that I came out of that vision. And I said, what's York? What is York? Why okay, what's York? And I told my wife about it and she said, maybe it's New York. Are you going to New York? I said, no, I've heard so many bad stories about New York. I don't want to go there. <laughs> you know, so I, so, so I was worried about that because I knew that this was a message from God that I was going somewhere, but I didn't know where it was. So I started asking from people. But the other thing I noticed is that the map that York was written on top of was the map of the United Kingdom. Uh-huh. So I narrowed my search now. So I started asking people. So one day we were having our annual convex- convention in our, in our camp, the camp meeting. So we had lots of our missionaries coming in from all over the place. So there is this particular missionary of ours that came in from Sheffield. Uh-huh. So I was, I was the one looking after him and his and his team that came. So I asked him, I said, do you know a place called York in England? Said, oh, yeah. <laughs> so I'm from Sheffield. York is in North Yorkshire, and I'm in South Yorkshire. I said, so somewhere, a place called York exists. He said, yeah, it does exist. He said, why are you asking? And I explained to him what I saw. And he said, wow. I said, yes. You have to come to York then. So the other guys in his team said, oh, yes, you have to come to York and all of that. So, okay. He went back to Sheffield. His secretary heard about my intention to come to York to do missions. She was part of a missionary outfit uh, in Sheffield. She announced it there. Somebody came from York to that meeting, heard it told Dave Crooks about it. Dave Crooks told Michael ask you about it. And Michael asked you, contacted me. <laughs> right. was so quite... I to explain, uh, Michael Askew and Dave Crooks are, are, are old friends of ours when we yeah. used to live in New York. And um, we're part, we were all part of the same church then. So um, yeah. that, amazing. How amazing. Yeah. Wow. Very, very amazing. Scarily amazing, I would say. Yeah. Because of the way yeah. you opened those tidings. Because mm-hmm. it just proves to me that if, if something is God's will, he ties it together. Yeah, right. So, so that was how I came to York. <laughs> right. So did you go just on a visit to start with, or did you actually move your well, wife? And it, you moved? it started with a visit. Um, it started with a visit um, to, to the city, and I met Michael on my first visit, and I, and I lived with them. Then, um, then I kind of understood the process that will that I have to go through to get a work visa and all of that. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't possible immediately. So I had to be doing a lot of visiting trips with my wife, which was quite expensive for us. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know. So what was the sending, your, your sending um, organization? They were all part of this process, oh, were yes. they? Yeah, yeah, they were, because I had to go and ask for a leave of, uh, uh, for them to release me to go to right. York. They were happy with that, that I can go. Uh, my general overseer uh, general who did not want me to go to Malaysia, now say, yeah, you can go to York. <laughs> Amazing. Wow. <laughs> yeah, you can go to York. So, so eventually, um, when I discovered that traveling back and forth was quite expensive, 
I said, okay, you know what I would do? Because I'm a missionary and I want to really understand, find a way to connect with the people more and understand what the society is like. And the, uh, well, what better, what better avenue uh, can I do that from other than going to a school? So, so I decided to enroll into uh, studying in the university. So I got admission in to the study. UK. In the UK, yes. So I got okay. admission to study Right. Uh, for an MBA at Teesside University. So okay. that's really exposed me into uh, the country. So I finished that MBA. Then I did another MBA in Chester uh, in missional leadership. So uh, that also exposed me to some of the things I didn't know about the country and, and all of that. So, so by the time I was finishing my um, MBA in Chester, I then I was now able to get a work visa okay. to stay as a missionary. So, uh, so those were that your your process of training. Then you didn't have some yeah. cross cultural training per se, but you just no, exposed no. yourself. Yeah, to the, I just the, yeah, I, I just put myself out there, yeah. uh, made my made myself vulnerable. <laughs> Rosalind, your wife was with you throughout. She was that? she was with me all, throughout all the time. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that, I mean, I was, I was, well, that was one of my questions. Did you do cross cultural training? Well, I guess yes and yeah. no would be the answer. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, in other yeah. words, when you first arrived, then was the UK a complete culture shock, or did you sort of just take it in your stride because you were at a university and, you know, yeah. other, other internationals were there and all that? I would say yes, and I would say no, because I'm, I'm quite familiar with the United Kingdom. Almost everybody in my family lived in this country. Okay. So from, from, from birth, <laughs> I have been told about the United Kingdom. Don't talk about America in my family. Talk about the UK, <laughs> you know, and, and all of that. So I was quite aware of that. My, my, my dad's friends used to come in December to Nigeria to visit with us and they stay with us, you, you know. So I, I knew quite a number of them um, mm -hmm. that came. So I was quite comfortable with the UK. Interestingly, where I had the shock was in the church. Uh-huh. How? The society, the society did not shock me at all. I was, I was quite familiar. I, mm -hmm. I knew what to expect. But the church shocked me. In what way? It wasn't what I was expecting. Unfriendly, unfriendly was it? Very unfriendly. Wow. Uh, and it wasn't what I was expecting at all. Uh, I remember telling a friend of mine in Nigeria that I was going on missions to the UK. And he said, no, you can't go on missions to the UK. I said, why? He said, that's a Christian country. And that's, we call the United Kingdom because most of our missionaries, most missionaries that came to Nigeria came from here. The mm -hmm. UK, that's Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, and England. So we call this place God's God's headquarters. <laughs> Not so much. <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> yeah. That's that's what that's that's what we call this place. So, so it was wow. quite shocking for me. I, mm -hmm. I, I it took me some time to recover from this shock. Mm -hmm. You know. Um, the church wasn't friendly. The church wasn't welcoming. The doctrines were, some of the doctrines were quite strange. You know, uh, there was no passion. 
Mm-hmm. There was no, I couldn't see anything visible that has to do with soul winning. Soul winning. Uh, mm. Evangelism was almost non-existence. Right. And people were very comfortable. Mm. You know, I come from a society where you can be comfortable with a church of 10 people or 20 people or 100 people. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the idea is that when whatever number you have in the church, 80% of them has to be disciples, to be, to be workers who are ready to be sent, mm. who are ready to go. So, so that's why most of our churches are not mega churches. They grow big, but they are cut in half. So the half goes somewhere else to, to plant another church, do a, do mission somewhere else. So that, that's how that's how the organization grew. Mm. So so it was quite interesting for me to see what I saw, mm. and, uh, and that that shook me. Uh, it really shook me. But I enjoyed my time speaking to ordinary people, local people who didn't believe in God at all, who were quite receptive. I remember speaking to a lady who was driving a taxi and she was asking me what I was doing. I told her I was a missionary. I said, okay, you're one of the good ones then. I said, oh, maybe. <laughs> I don't know about that. And she started telling me the story of her, her son, her teenage son, who is quite rebellious and who did all manner of things. That he's off to Czechoslovakia or somewhere, Czech Republic, I think, with his girlfriend. I said, he's a teenager. I said, he has a girlfriend. I said, yeah, gone without the, yeah. Wow, that's that's interesting. So, and she, at the end of the ride, she told me, "Can I can I call you to come and have a word with him when he gets back?" So that's the kind of reception I got from the local local population, and God was sending a message to me. That's where I'm sending you to. Those mm-hmm. are the people I wanted to reach. Yes, you, 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 you know. So, but again, because the city I was sent to is quite, the church community is quite closely, it's quite meted, quite closely meted. So, so although I want to do this, but then I can't do that effectively if I can, if I'm not able, if I'm not received. <laughs> the church, you, see, you see what I'm saying? So, so I had to do a lot of um, waiting and praying mm-hmm. and building bridges and building relationships, trying to make people not to be too scared of my presence. <laughs> so at this time, you were still in Teesside, or or um, I, was, I was still I was still in Teesside. Yeah. Okay. Right. Uh, yeah, so yeah, when did you so, get to York then? <laughs> no, no, I've, I've always lived in York. I didn't. I didn't move out of York. Oh, okay. So I, right. I always commute to Teesside for my lectures and back. Uh-huh. I never, even when I was in Chester, I never left York. I'd always lived in York. <laughs> Okay. New York is the only city I've lived in since mm-hmm. I came. Right. So uh, my my question was going to be, um, what was your biggest challenge? I would say probably you've already answered that, the, the yeah. reception in the church. But then what yeah. was the biggest blessing? Maybe the reception with people outside or what, how would you answer that? Well, I would say my biggest blessing was to, was to see the younger of people outside. You know, when Jesus says, lift up your eyes and look mm. and see the harvest, mm-hmm. 
and there is nothing to something as precious to a missionary as recognizing that the harvest is white and the harvest is ready. I could see that, and that made me very very enthusiastic. It helps mm-hmm. me. It helped me to to close my eyes to every other thing that is happening around me. You, you know, so so that was my biggest blessing to see the to see that there are lots of people who are are willing to listen to the gospel, to hear me speak to them and all of that. And to be honest, I was sharing this in church the other day. I've never really had anybody say no to me if I say I wanted to tell them about Jesus. Is I is I right? Probably would to fellow York Yorkians, yeah, but they yeah. but they're very open to you coming from outside, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, that that can be that 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 is a possibility. The only the only people that tell that say that tells me how difficult it is to witness are church people. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You know, in fact, when I when I, I remember speaking to a man once, and trust me, my messages are not uh they are very straight. <laughs> I'm more like a Yorkshire man. Uh, we say things as it is. <laughs> so, so my messages are quite straight. I remember speaking to a man once in the center of town and he told me that I need to speak to his wife as well. And this was a man that never believed in God. Mm. You know, so, so and, and when church people tell me that no, you can't do this and you can't do that. But the people are ready. How do, so I started asking the question, so how do you know you can't? Mm-hmm. And I discovered there were lots of assumptions. Mm-hmm. One, one person went out or two people went out once and somebody was hostile to them and they concluded that 200,000 people in York don't want to listen. That's not true. Mm-hmm. That's right. not true. A lot of people want to hear. It's, it's good news anyway. So a lot of people want to hear good news. You see, and the thing is that I think most times people tend to um, put the cart before the horse. You know, people, I, I can understand the desire to want people saved, but people cannot be saved until they hear the gospel. Mm-hmm. My job is not to save them. My job is to share the gospel with them. That is all I've been called to do. God does the saving. So let me plant the seed and leave them alone. <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and it has been very, very interesting. I remember you sharing with Ross and me the story of um, how you began to get to know your neighbors. So I'm wondering if yeah. you could, uh, share, well, in two different yeah. places, you had a different yeah. strategy. So. Yeah. yeah. The first one was when, I, when we moved into Poppleton. So at Poppleton, is a very, posh area of York, if you want to call it that. And uh, I just discovered that all my neighbors are invisible. <laughs> I know their cars, but I don't know them by face. <laughs> so you can just see all these cars parked on the driveway, but you don't, are they automatic cars? Do they drive themselves? You can't really say. So one, one Easter period, I just felt a sense that, okay, perhaps what I would do is to go into Tesco and get some Easter cards, greeting cards for my neighbors. So I went around the estate and I counted all the houses there. And I went into Tesco to buy cards for everybody. I didn't know their names, I didn't know who they were. 
But I know the number of the houses. So I started numbering the cards. This is from Ruben and Rosalind at number 10. That was all I did. I put our names there to the to you guys in number five. <laughs> you know? So I just left it at that. And I shared it one night when everybody had gone to bed. Yeah, that was when I went through, I went around the estate and shared the, the cards. By afternoon the next day, we had loads of cards in our house. And I thought, oh, maybe they've, they've, they're not, everybody's upset. They've now sent our cards back. But when we started opening, it was like a reciprocal card. Uh-huh. They went off, bought Easter card, and sent it back to us, and now put their names on it. <laughs> you know, so that was how I got to know them, and it was an amazing relationship we had with our neighbors in that estate. They knew we were, they knew what we did, and uh, they were comfortable with it, and they they wanted to be friends with us. You know, um, there was a there was a lady who just had. A very very nasty separation with her husband, and she was in a very bad state. She just remembered that we were missionaries and we were pastors. And one day she just came to our house. And she said she needed to talk to somebody, and she started telling me about our situation and all of that. And we and she doesn't believe in God. But at that desperate moment of her life, she needed to talk to somebody who could give her some perspective. Mm-hmm. You know? And she came to me. So if I did not obey God in putting myself forward, perhaps mm-hmm. she wouldn't have had that opportunity to come and talk to me. Then we had my next door neighbor's uh, testimony quite interesting. We're coming back from church on Sunday afternoon. And I met him in front of his house, um, mowing the lawn. And I said hello to him. And I asked, so how's your wife then? And he was scandalized. I don't have a wife. I don't have a wife. And I, what about this person in your house? Who is she? She's not my wife. She's my partner. I said, oh, okay. But you have a son together. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, so why are you not married then? It's too risky. I don't want to buy it. Then I said to him, you know what? You're not really going to be doing anything different if you get married. You're just going to cement your commitment to one another. Hmm. And he said, really? I said, yeah. Nothing will change. Still the same person. You still live in the same house. You still have the same son. You know, but... You will now cement your commitments to each other. That's all. That's all. So, okay. It's very interesting. And you went away, and I went away. About five months later, both himself and his partner came to knock on our door to <laughs> announce to me that they were getting married. <laughs> mm. And I did know that. The guy's parents were Christians. They were from Northern Ireland. Uh, so his parents were Christian. They too came around during the wedding and they came to say thank you. You uh, know, but it, it, it's, it's quite interesting because after we had that conversation, I now 
signposted them to the local church, uh, to the local Anglican church in our in our area there. I introduced them to the vicar. And uh, it took them in. They had their wedding there. I I was at the wedding. <laughs> you know, it's it just quite interesting. And and we felt very fulfilled in that estate before we moved. Mm-hmm. Now, where we live now, the same thing happened. We didn't right. know our neighbors. <laughs> you know, they didn't know each I, other probably either. <laughs> no, they didn't. So I said, okay, what do I do here now? Because we've had so much success in the last place. I wanted to, I couldn't do the same thing. I had to pray. So I prayed. One morning, the bean guys came to collect the beans. And uh, I saw, you know how they do, they collect the beans and they just leave it lying everywhere. And my eyes were open to how scattered beans were uh, on the streets. So I decided I was going to take the beans back to all the houses. So every time they come, I would take the bean back. And that was how they got to know me. <laughs> so I was the guy that put the bean bags to the uh, driveway of pe- driveways of people, you know. And we are enjoying our time on the streets. People as not people are not as bad as people say they are. Mm-hmm. People are only scared. Yeah, and they just mm-hmm. need somebody to come and tell them that there is no reason to be scared. Mm-hmm. You know. And, and yeah, it has been quite interesting. It, it is my prayer that Christians, those who believe in Jesus, will be visible. We can't be hiding like all everybody else. We can't, mm-hmm. we can't just lock our doors like everybody else. Uh, Jesus said we are a city set on top of a hill that cannot be hid. Mm-hmm. So all we're trying to do is to be out there, you know, and be visible. Just in case anybody needs us. <laughs> yeah, that's lovely. So, um, one other story I remember was about how you got your twins. Because when you first came to England, you didn't have children. So, tell us that story. Well, it's a very interesting one because um, when I when we got married, we were very very excited about having children. Um, but unfortunately, uh, my wife suffered. Uh, quite a few miscarriages um, during the first and the second year of our marriage, mm. and that was that was very that was a very trying time for us. And as it's my practice, practice if I don't understand things, uh, I always want to ask God why. Mm. I went into a season of prayer and fasting. Um, just to be able to connect with God and say, why are all these things happening to me? And God spoke to me in a very clear, with very clear words. You can't give yourself children. I will give you children. Face my job and I will do it when I want. Hmm. So that killed every anxiety in me. That killed every anxiety in my wife. And we never talked about it again. Hmm. So we're just busy planting churches, doing our job, going up wherever we are sent, you know, and even pray for people who were barren and they were and they were getting and they were receiving miracles. Yeah. We did that wow. a lot. We did that for about a year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know. 
So when we arrived here, we didn't have children. And I suppose that was God's way of saying, I'm sending you guys out. You need to travel light. You don't need the baggage. A <laughs> lot of baggage be, with kids, for sure. <laughs> and to be, to be honest, with hindsight, they say hindsight is a good thing. You know, with hindsight, I think God was right. Because could you imagine if we were traveling with children back and forth into the UK when we came in? It was expensive for, for, for both of us. <laughs> it would have been even more expensive with children as well. But um, about five, six years ago, myself and my wife were praying. We were praying um, in one of our um, devotions. And we felt the Lord said to us, it was time. It was time. But we didn't know how that would work. We've never gone to do any medical check. We've never done anything like that. We're just waiting. You know. So I rang Michael up. Uh, Michael asked you, you know. And I said to him, we feel God wants us to, it is time to have children. I said, okay, so what can I do? I said, well, pray. Pray into that. And the other thing we would like to do is to go and have some kind of medical checkup to see if we are okay. <laughs> you know, and uh, he said, yeah, that would be a good idea. So we went off for this medical checkup and we were told that my wife couldn't go see. Uh-huh. That she couldn't go see, that she wasn't producing enough hex so that that can happen. And we were in a better state before that examination. <laughs> so after the exam, we were, pro- we were now properly broken. But again, we realized that God said it was time. Mm. You know. So we went back to prayer and we felt God saying to us, who counted the eggs? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so we left it at that and continued praying. So one afternoon, Michael came to our house and I was the only one at home on that day. And he said, ah, I was praying today and God asked me to come and pray for you to have a child. I said, no, 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 sorry, children. I said, okay. So I knelt down before him and he prayed and left. So after he left, a few weeks later, my dad took heel in Nigeria and my sibling said he was going to die. I should come home quickly. So I took my wife along, we went. So we we were with him, we looked after him, and thank God he did not die, still with us till now. <laughs> so uh, we came back um, home, home to York, and my wife fell sick. She became very, very sick. And I thought probably she has contracted malaria. Mm-hmm. So we went to the hospital, and they did some tests, and the doctor said, are you pregnant? And she said, no. And I said, no, 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 no. So are you sure? I said, yes, I'm very sure. She, she's not pregnant. I'm always saying, I'm not pregnant. I said, okay, just to be sure, we'll go and we'll send you to the early pregnancy unit. Let them do a test and let's, let's rule that out. And we went there together. <laughs> 
And uh, it just confirmed that she was pregnant. How amazing. I said, all right. I wasn't still sure. And I said, how did you know? I said, yeah, they, they, yeah, they did urine tests and all of that. I said, well, that's not very reliable, is it? From what I heard. Uh, can't you just do an ultrasound? I said, no, it's too heavy and all of that. I said, but how, do we really, how are we really sure about this? So the guy was very gracious and sent us away for an ultrasound. And the ultrasound completely messed me up. When we got there, the guy, the sonographer did everything. I came back and said, well, congratulations. So there are two sacks in the womb. <laughs> I said, two sacks? What does that mean? Does it mean that she, there's a growth there? Is it cancer? Or what is it? No, no, no. Two sacks. You're going to have twins. <laughs> twins. <laughs> Amazing. So, so she has she had to stop work immediately mm -hmm. and just stayed at home until the children came. <laughs> oh, I bet Michael yeah. was absolutely thrilled to bits. <laughs> uh, it, it was his fault. It was his fault. <laughs> <laughs> I think God had already said it was time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, our time is nearly up, but I just wanted to ask about the, um, the sending organization that you're part of. Um, how do you stay in touch with them? Do they continue to send people to the UK? And um, well, what is their reason for existing? Okay, the, uh, the, my sending organization is called the Redeemed Christian Church of God. Now, it was founded about 70 years ago in oh. Nigeria by an uneducated man. Uneducated man, okay. Uneducated. He was an illiterate. He couldn't, write, he couldn't, couldn't even write his name. Wow. You know? But he was part of a church, uh, a traditional African church. It was a trans... The traditional African church then was a... was kind of a... a, a confluence between... Um, the idea of church and the local traditional uh, spiritual practices. So he was part of this. And God called him out of that church and told him, uh, Jesus appeared to him and told him that what he was doing was wrong, that he wasn't, they were not worshiping him, that he wanted him to worship him and tell others to worship him. You know? Mm -hmm. So he went away and God gave him grace to become a prayer, an intercessor. So he prayed earnestly and God told him he, he was going to plant a church and gave him the name of the church. And God showed him a picture of the name and he started to scribble the picture down. This was a man that couldn't write, read or write. Started to scribble the letters and the picture down. And when he finished scribbling them down, he looked for somebody, a, a young boy who was in school, and asked him, what did this say? He said, it's the redeemed Christian Church of God. <laughs> so that was how the name came about. It's quite a mouthful, but that was how it came about. And, and nobody could change it because it was, it was divinely inspired. Mm. You know, so, um, so he started preaching from town to town about the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Many people came to faith. He was very, very embraced by God. 
um, to 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 really do do things supernaturally. Many sick people were healed. Many people were raised from the dead. You know, a lot of witch doctors became Christians in this time. Very very humble but powerful man for God, and uh, that was how the church started. Mm-hmm. But the church did not become globally missional not until after he passed on and the new leader stepped in. The new leader, by contrast, is a university professor. Wow. He's <laughs> a university professor. He was the youngest professor in the country at the time. Mm. Very, very unbelieving. But gave his life to Jesus in the church that the founder was the leader so mm. so and when he walked in the founder said that god told him that's the man that was going to take over from him wow. so and that's the man that is going to take the church to the ends of the earth so when he became the leader the church became very missional mm-hmm. so our missions enterprise started in africa we call it the African Invasion Project. And we properly invaded Africa. Properly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> invaded Africa with the gospel. And uh, today, the church has um, expressions in 198 countries in the world. 198 yeah, countries <laughs> in the world. And that's amazing. Wow. That, that that's that's quite something, and uh, it's um, quite a global miracle, I would say, mm-hmm. uh, because nothing like that can come out of where I come from. But God did it, <laughs> you know. So we we our, our mission in Europe is more of a call of a calling than what you just do to spread. In fact, our international headquarters is in London. Really? Yeah. Our current, our current passion is to reach the east of Europe. We just finished a crusade in Netherlands, in Slovakia, and in Ireland. The one in Slovakia was quite something. You know, oh. an entire um, Bratislava shut down that Sunday afternoon. The entire city was shut down. We could see what God was doing, you know, and the the organization is investing a lot in Europe now and sending more people out uh, with the gospel here. So uh, we believe that Europe will be revived in our lifetime. Oh, well, amen. We, we, we believe that strongly. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's quite interesting because the people here don't believe it. The Christians here don't believe it, but we believe it strongly. Mm-hmm. And uh, that can be seen in the, the level of investment that is going into Europe uh, right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, a few months ago, well, probably more than a year ago now, I interviewed a guy from Burundi called Anessa for Mani, Mani Rakiza, mm-hmm. who shares that same passion for what, we, what I suppose is commonly called reverse mission. Mm-hmm. which is going back to the countries where 
the gospel first originally went to um, Africa from. And you said that most of the missionaries who went to Nigeria came from the UK. Mm. Um, so, but I think that, you know, people talk a lot now about reverse missions, but, but it sounds like your, um, your sending organization is more in just following the Great Commission, you know, obeying the Great Commission, going out anywhere that God leads. But are there some like yourself who would still have that, that sense of more Europe than anywhere or more America maybe? Well, I think the, 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 the term reverse missionary in itself is, is not, it's not a layer of missions. It's more of a label you give to anybody that comes to a place where a missionary yeah. came from, uh, brought the gospel to where it's coming from, kind of thing. So, so I think the Great Commission is the main, is the motivating factor. You know, I said in our church recently that our church is not a sitting capacity church; it's a sending capacity church. So, what we are raising here are people who will go. Mm-hmm. We want to raise people who, when they are sleeping at night, their dream, the only thing they will be hearing in their dream is go, 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 go. <laughs> you know, mm. because we, we need soldiers on the field just now. <laughs> you know, so I think the Great Commission is what motivates us rather than uh, the reverse missionary concept. People call me a reverse missionary, mm-hmm. but they call me that because of where, where I came from and how missionaries from here brought the gospel to us. My headmaster in primary school was from Scotland. Right. You know, yeah, I went to an Anglican primary school in Nigeria, and it was very, very British, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. We caught our first, we caught our teeth with church from there, you know. We learned discipline from them. Our idea of Christianity is discipline. We must be disciplined. <laughs> that, that was our idea of Christianity. You come to school early. You pray before you start your work. You pray at assemblies. You sing songs of praise. You, you must have all those things to come to school. That was how we were brought up. You know? So part of the shock was coming here and seeing none of that happening. Mm-hmm. It, it was quite shocking. You know? So, so, we we know that God is God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him, and a lot of people have come out of these shows that diligently sought the Lord and gave their life for the gospel, and God will reward that. You know, so what we are seeing in Europe today with people coming in from Africa, missionaries coming in from Africa, um, and and to be honest other parts of the world is God remembering the labels of our heroes past. Well, that's great. Thank you so much, Ruben. Thank you for taking the time to share with us. Oh, my pleasure. (laughs) My pleasure. Uh, It's given us an awful lot of food for thought. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it, it is an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing to to be called to do missions. Mm -hmm. I know I've met people who are scared about it mm-hmm. but there is nothing scary about abandoning yourself in the hands of God <laughs> you know when I carry my children when I carry them they feel safe 
they, they feel peace. You can see the way they grab me and are comfortable in my hands. Uh, that's the way we, we, we're supposed to feel when we're in the hands of God. That's right. Yeah, and, every, and every missionary, when you go out, God is just carrying you. You, know, you, you feel his warmth, you feel his comfort, you feel his presence and his security. So there's nothing to fear. You know. It's nothing to fear. Okay. Lovely note to finish on. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Christine. Thank you for having me. So that's it for now. Um, thanks so much for joining us. And um, please do go and see all the other interviews, listen to this one, share it with other people, like us on Facebook. Just let other, other lots of people know that um, Field Partner is there and we're there to help people who are wanting to cross into other cultures, exactly as Ruben has been saying. So bye-bye for now then, and God bless. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Field Partner. You can watch or listen to more interviews by subscribing to this channel, our YouTube channel, or our Facebook page. For free cross-cultural mission courses, blogs, sermons, and other resources, visit our website, fieldpartner.org.